0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This piece has been brought to you by Bonnie Plants. BonniePlants.com I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Coming up on Eating Matters, I'll be speaking with Heritage's own Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food, about the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act. That's back in the news. Stay tuned. Hi, and welcome to the first episode of the spring-summer season of Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and I'm so glad to be back, broadcasting live from Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're going to be talking about recent activity on the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act that almost a year later is still not finalized. But before we get into the topic at hand, I want to introduce a new segment for the show where we bring you yesterday's news today and briefly discuss some of the biggest food policy stories from the past week. First up, we have soda taxes, which took center stage this past week. Oakland City Council members proposed a soda tax for the November ballot. The proposed tax would charge one cent per fluid ounce, estimated to generate six to $12 million annually for the city. The revenue would fund education programs aimed at improving children's health. Meanwhile, on the East Coast, the debate over the Philadelphia proposed soda tax took national spotlight when Democratic presidential candidates Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders stood divided. Clinton expressed strong support for Mayor Kenney's proposed tax tax, a $0.03 per ounce tax that would raise an estimated $400 million for the city over five years. Generated revenue would fund pre-kindergarten education. Sanders opposes the tax because he does not support a, quote, regressive tax, which uh, indirectly would increase taxes on low-income and middle-class Americans. This is not the city's first attempt to pass legislation of this kind, as Mayor Kenney's predecessor tried and failed to institute a similar tax. Soda policy, as you know, if you've been a listener, is a a big issue. um, And we dedicated an entire episode to it last season, which you should check out. Uh, It's called Soda Policy, What's on Tap, if you want to learn more. Moving, fo- moving on, in a throwback to Upton Sinclair, new rules released this week from the Labor Department and supported by the Obama administration will expand whistleblower protections for food industry employees. According to the new rules, food workers who report food safety violations or wrongdoings cannot be fired or disciplined for disclosing information. And there's nothing ordinary about it. Taco Bell has committed to eliminating antibiotics from its chicken by... Early 2017. The announcement follows similar pledges from fast food companies, including McDonald's and Subway. And finally, a new study came out on Monday in the Journal of Obesity, which found that although obesity prevalence rates have plateaued in recent years, there's no indication of a national decline. Ashley Skinner, a researcher at the Duke Clinical Research Institute and the study's lead author, said she found a consistent increase in obesity across all-age children from 1999 through 2014. She also emphasized a continued increase in the rate of severe or morbid obesity amongst teens, which rose from 6 to 10% within the given time frame. Womp womp. Uh, Okay, now I want to turn my attention to the issue at hand, um, which we're going to be talking about today, the Child Nutrition Reauthorization Act, or CNR for short. This legislation authorizes all of the federal school meal and child nutrition programs, which provide funding to ensure that low-income children have access to healthy and nutritious foods. It's also important to note that every five years, Congress reviews the laws governing these programs through the reauthorization process. And speaking of this process, CNR has been back in the news over the past few weeks with proposals being put forward by the House that some are finding controversial. Joining me to further explain where this bill is in the legislative process and what's at stake for millions of children who rely on programs funded by this legislation is fellow Heritage Radio Network host Laura Stanley. Laura is the host of Inside School Food, the leading news source about the progressive work happening on USDA school meal programs. For 20 years, her work as a journalist and project director has supported pioneers in the restaurant and industrial food supply chain, working towards a healthier, more sustainable, just, and humane system. Laura, welcome to the show. Hey, Jenna. How does it feel to be on the other side? Kind of weird. (laughs) I, I, I can imagine. Um, okay, well, we're so glad um, to have – I'm so glad to have you on the show today. I could think of nobody better to help us kind of dig into some of these issues. So before we kind of get into some of the more nuanced policy questions, I want to I set the stage for our listeners. So can you give us a brief overview of the types of programs authorized by this legislation and why they're important?
1: Well, as you said, it's um, it's authorized every five years, um, but it it is permanently. Um, it's actually per- the child federal child nutrition programs, which don't uh, just include school food. I know we're going to be talking mainly about school food mm-hmm. today, but they also include other uh, child and family nutrition programs, such as WIC, SNAP, um, summer food service program, um, things like that. Um, and what Congress does every five years is review the laws governing these programs, and that's what we mean by reauthorization. And, and as you know, your listeners probably know the last reauthorization was for school food, really historic in scale because there were these really um, ambitious changes in nutrition policy and meal pattern requirements that were, you know, not just aimed at. Reducing obesity, as they always didn't always had been, but there's like a new emphasis um, on being getting kids familiar with fresh food, uh, particularly fresh fruits and vegetables.
2: Right, which was which was a, a real um, step change from what had come yeah. before it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is the
2: what is the purpose behind reauthorization? Like, why does this have to happen?
1: Well, okay, that's that's a bigger question. I'm not sure I can entirely answer it, but, but certainly, you know, because I'm not a, like a legislative expert person, but, you know, it's really about um, just making sure they're on track. Um, so, mm-hmm. so you know, the, the policies change um, as our understanding of nutrition changes, as, um, as our food culture changes, as our politics change. So every five years, you know, ever since this, um, you know, we've had a, a um, you know, U.S. School lunch and uh, breakfast programs. Um, you know, there's there have been years, you know, times when it was tweaked and times when it was really changed.
2: And the and the, the the real change happened in 2010.
1: Like I well, said, it was historic. It, right. big, it was a big year.
2: Right. Okay. So for our discussion today, um, we're going to primarily focus on the the school feeding programs that have been particularly controversial in this reauthorization process. So those are um, the National School Meals Program and the Fresh Fruits and Vegetable Program. Um, can you kind of help uh, outline some of the key players involved in uh, reauthorization? The reauthorization process. Process and implementation of these programs.
1: Sure, it, it gets complicated, but I'll 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 give you the quick version, um, and then you can ask me questions if I have not tell you enough. <laughs> uh, but the, the way it works is there's two committees from each house of Congress. So there's a Senate Agriculture Committee, and in the House there's a, a committee called the House Education and the Workforce. And it it's very complicated. They separately draft their own child nutrition bills, and it's an arduous process that involves more than a year of you know, behind closed doors meetings plus public hearings uh, with a host of constituents, um, and those would include um, child nutrition advocates, people in the food industry, people in the food service industry. Um, you know, I can tell you more about those shortly, but I, sure. I want to go back to the process. So, yeah. so what they need to do um, after they've they've consulted with all of they need to uh, draft their reauthorization bill, and then um, the Senate goes first, and they, they were, um, the whole business was supposed to be done by September 30th of last year. Um, it's usually delayed, so the Senate's um, committee, uh, Senate committee's bill um, went to the House and was approved in early January. The House bill, um, only hasn't even gone on for markup yet and by markup i mean it gets released to the full um... house for discussion and uh... amending and so forth um... it's, it's not even there yet so what we have now is just a draft that's not yet been marked up that uh, there was a, a an actual leak of that bill um... that politico made earlier this month and i, and I think the leaking of of uh... The bill was what really hastened the official release of the bill That's my theory. Right. way Yeah
2: um, Yeah, some some spy craft <laughs> Who
1: knows <laughs> Or whatever um, okay. but I should add, you know, I didn't finish explaining I, yeah. Eventually, so, you know, this big creaky process involves. you know, each of these bills Have all these moving parts, all these different programs I'm talking about, but eventually Once both, ha- um, you know Legislatures vote on their bills They're meant to be merged and then sent To both houses for passage So it's intensely complicated.
2: Right. Okay. So so just to recap, we have the um, let me make sure I got this right. So September 2015, that was the original due date mm-hmm. for the entire like finalized bill. Yeah. Um that has come and gone. Uh, the senate uh, the the committee and then the the chamber drafted and finalized a bill that had strong bipartisan support mm-hmm, it did in in uh, january and now the house's committee has just released the first version of the bill and it's it um is hasn't yet gone to the house floor for everybody's right. input right
1: right and, and um, disappointingly yeah. there are some pretty significant differences between the house bill and the bipartisan Senate bill, which came as a surprise to some and not to others.
2: Right. Yeah, and that's something that we're definitely going to get into in a minute. Um, But so, any other kind of major players? um, You mentioned the like anti-hunger. You know. Uh, Anti-Hunger School Nutrition Association. Can you kind of give us a, a, a brief overview
1: of sure, of sure. you know who yeah. some of these people I mean, are so and If you watch the hearings, which um, being a school food wonk, I <laughs> <laughs> um, you'll see that how diverse the group is. So you know, people who came to consult with the committees included representatives from state and agencies that administer these federal meals programs. Um, you know, the people from the food industry. Um, anti-hunger groups, for instance, the No Kid Hungry and the Food Resource and Action Center, um, and many, many nutrition and public health advocacy groups. So I've just mentioned, too, the Center for Science of the Public Interest is a big one. Another one we've been hearing from a lot is the Pew State Healthful Kids Project um, by way of example. And then also the School Nutrition Association representing um, the food, School Food Service industry, those, those workers, um, and, and the military, interestingly, was, has been involved in this process. Why has the military been involved? Well, if you look back on the history of the National School Lunch Program, that was where it started. Um, it was during uh, World War II that um, the military discovered that the recruits were simply not fit to fight. They were malnourished, um, and that, back in those days, malnourished meant they were too thin and weak, um, rather right. weak and they're overweight. So um, the military got involved uh, with supporting Healthy Free Hunger Kids Act um, um, with the release of a report called Too Fat to Fight, which was signed by a great number of uh, retired generals. Um, And since that, they've established um, uh, a group called Mission Readiness, which advocates for um, strong nutrition standards, and, and they're big champions of the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act.
2: Oh wow! Okay, so you you mentioned before um, that it, there are major discrepancies between the two drafts of the bills, um, and I want to get into that in a second. But first, we're going to take a quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors, um, and then we will um, dive into these differences and what they mean for the future of school food. <laughs>
1: It's not just your garden It's the way you live And there's so much to know But you have help Bonnie Plants Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown You can learn about veggie and herb varieties Track and record your garden with photos and notes Share on Facebook and Twitter And so much more How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants For iPhone and Android The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie.
2: And we're back on Eating Matters, where today we're speaking with Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food on Heritage Radio Network, about the House's proposal for CNR. Okay, so before we dig, actually before we dig deeper, um, bet- you know, to kind of get into discrepancies between the House and the Senate drafts, mm-hmm. Laura, can you tell us if there are any major departures between the Senate bill, which um, we, we mentioned was finalized a few months ago, and the 2010 Healthy and Hunger-Free Kids Act, which is um, a current iteration? Well, of
1: I mean, what you can say is that um, not everybody got everything they wanted, but basically the bill is protective of... Um, the the nutrition requirements that that um, have really changed the face of school food and also protective of measures taken to make sure that more kids who qualify for um, what we call free or reduced price meals, we talk a lot about a free reduced rate in schools, more of those children got reached through policies, which I know we're gonna, you want to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. So, so the bill um, was largely protective. You know, there, there was some some um, disagreement over some tinkering with the nutrition regulations. But honestly, if, if I was a parent, it's nothing I'd lose sleep over.
2: So some of these, can you give examples of some of the healthier um, standards just to help us sort of explain what the House, you know, later on what the House wants to change?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act um, mandated um, a certain servings uh, at a certain level of fruits and vegetables for, for lunch, mm-hmm. which hadn't been before, um, and also uh, mandated a change in um, grain and bread products, so more emphasis on whole grain. They, they have a new... They came up with a with a definition of what they wanted. They call it whole grain rich. It's very confusing for people not in school food. But basically, what that means is that grain products offered at school need to be at least fifty percent um, whole grain in content, and the rest of it fortified. Um, you know, refined uh, flour or wheat. So that meant no more white rice; it's all brown rice. Um, things like even even things traditional foods like tortillas needed to be reformulated so that they met the whole grain rich requirement. So it was it was controversial because it was kind of tough for mm-hmm. industry to adapt. But the, but the good news is that they did, um, and and so the the the, uh, the whole grain rich standard has turned out to be successful, and yet um, there was still some, you know, what can I say? Like I said, spring around the edges uh, all summer that went on. Right. But they came to an, an agreement that that seems to, to be a good one. Um, they the, the requirement now allows for, you know, what we call a, a certain amount of, of, of kind of culturally sensitive foods to be served. So if you're in a, in a for instance, in the South, you, you can some of the time now um, – serve um, a a white flour biscuit because it's a beloved traditional food. Or if you're serving um, students from a Southeast Asian background who are repelled by brown rice, you Mm -hmm. you can, you know, on occasion bring in white rice to bring up your participation and, and, you know, kind of warm them up School meals.
2: So that's on the whole grain-rich requirement, which was a big one. Mm -hmm. Um, Any other sort of standout changes?
1: Well, so much was changed. Yeah, you're like everything. I think a major change <laughs> yeah. with Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act is the, is the real pillar of of you know like getting more healthy food to kids through the what we call the Community Eligibility Program or CEP. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you know that that's really changed the face of of um, the industry. It's like a revolutionary innovation for fighting hunger. Um, basically, the way it works is um, districts that Um, have, or the way it is now, we'll talk in a minute about how the House is is hoping Mm -hmm. to alter it, but um, if a district has 60 percent or more children identified as eligible for free meals, and there's many ways that can be. So they, they can be kids who are in foster care or Head Start, they're homeless, migrant, living in households that receive SNAP and so forth. There's all kinds of ways to identify these children. Mm-hmm. So if there's at least, did I say 60? I meant to say at least 40% mm-hmm.
2: um,
1: in that category. Then the school can um, int- introduce uh, what we call universal meal service or free meals for everyone, and and the reason that we say that um, we talk about identified students, that that forty percent are are actually far from the only children that would typically qualify or, you know, be identified. So so in an environment where you're able to identify forty percent of your children as qualifying, the actual percent of kids who who um, need that assistance um, is actually much more, another twenty percent or even more, oh, wow. more than that. So what's what's great about Community eligibility is that it scoops up kids in the margins, um, you Who know, might both not kids that are qualifying for some reason on paper, yeah. or that don't, um, you know, are, are, are kind of living in the margins. They don't quite qualify, but they're still struggling and they're right. still from food insecure homes. So, so this just really changed things, and it, it really helped the, um, you know, the budgets of schools where they had they were serving these kinds of kids. Suddenly, they were getting federal reimbursements that really helped them do a better job.
2: And I and I think um, less sort of administrative burden to sort of sort out who is
1: yes exactly or and not. less administrative bur- burden means you save money on labor so right. it was huge
2: yeah. Um, okay, so so that is the, and just to uh, get, put it into context, I don't know, um, to the best of, uh, you, you can answer this, I mean, is, is 40% free and reduced rate, is that high, like, a thr- compared to all districts throughout the country, or is that, like, pretty normal? Like, what percentage would you estimate, kind of, are eligible um, right. for that provision.
1: Well, see, so that's, that's where it gets a little fuzzy. So what, I, what I'm doing is is really I, I, I look to the Food Resource and Action Center, and that they, they are really the authority on this. So when what I'm saying is basically I'm quoting them. Mm-hmm. So they they say that when is when when you you're able to quote identify forty percent of your children in your district or your school as um, as needing this food assistance, in fact. There are many more that need it. So, and you know, th- so they've come to this. So, um, so, so you know, so forty percent might actually mean that there's sixty five percent or more children that that really need that food assistance.
2: Right. But nationally, like, do you know the percentage of kind of districts that? Are eligible for universal? Oh, that's a mis- good
1: question, yeah. and I can't answer. Oh, yeah. No, sorry <laughs> about that.
2: I know it's just it's just kind of confusing to, to think of like you know I'm, I'm imagining our listeners like well would this apply for me or you know to my district? I'm wondering, um, does FRAC have a resource where you can look that up?
1: Oh, yeah, all that's on FRAC. and I, I can tell you this um, that um, they uh, they estimate that eighteen thousand schools. Um, uh, are they are well they know that about eighteen thousand schools are in the program, mm-hmm. and there's um like that's about forty five percent of the schools that are eligible, so there's more oh, okay. that could enter the program at the forty percent rate okay. um so so right now, the program is serving about eight point five million children okay, and if it if if the enrollment keeps going that that will go up significantly wow. okay,
2: all right, so like a good chunk there are a lot of people who rely oh, on this yeah. yeah this um this kind of programming okay, so now let's talk a little bit about the discrepancies between the so now that we know kind of the Senate bill, no major no major changes um with with the the this, this school nutrition programs that we've talked about that have mm-hmm. been pr- proposed, um, enter the House bill.
1: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, since we're talking about um, community eligibility, why don't we start there? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the the, um, the House bill calls for moving that 40% to 60%. So given what I just said, that what that means is that, um, you know, in reality... Um, the only districts that are that have like a, a needs level of maybe you know in the high 80s or 90th percentile are going to be eligible, and Frac estimates that about. So I just said that 18,000 schools are currently mm-hmm. in the program. Frac estimates that about 7,000 would be dropped from the rolls, wow. um, and of the eligible schools that haven't signed up yet, is about 11,000 that wouldn't be able to enroll. So wow. that's, I think that's the biggest. So almost the amount that. Everything that's in this House bill. Wow. And then another, if if we're looking at hurdles for insecure families, um, FRAC also points to a kind of dramatic increase in school meal application verification requirements. And so, you know, what this means is that, you know, it's just harder to apply um, mm-hmm. If your family is homeless or migrant, um, if you are a new American family with limited English, you know, understanding how to apply, um, knowing how to time it is harder. So some of these people will fall through the cracks. Um, so they're gonna, we're going to lose kids who need the, this kind of, um, you know, meal support, um, and then. The other thing the Bill calls for is a higher percentage of verifications from the school, um, from the schools, which means, you know, again, more labor hours. So, you know, whatever sample they were requiring before to to determine what the free reduced rate was in a given district, they're they're asking for a bigger sample. Um, hmm. You know, and basically, this is kind of like a a hunt for fraud. Um is there a lot of about um, yeah but yes, it's a lot more work um, right, and then um, So it sounds like they're trying to kind of discourage to, um summer meals, which are also um you know a, a hugely important when we 're talking about food insecurity they they as the as the Senate' committee was, they are in favor of expanding um Summer feeding to include a new strategy—a uh, sorry strategy for, for using EBT. Um, so kids who can't get to a summer meal feeding site can still
2: use their um, benefits. Get
1: access to to assistance. However, um, they are they're just, they're not. They're, it's more of a limited expansion in the case of the House. It's more of a pilot program. Whereas, it, you know, in, in the case of the um, Senate bill, it was it was a bigger bigger jump um, in aid. Okay. Um, the the, the sort of good news is, in, you know, is that the fruit and vegetable requirement went untouched. Um, so that was came as a, a good surprise. So, right. so you know, the House for now, the House committee is saying we will continue to require the same amount of, of fruits and vegetables on the plate. However, there's this stronger language around the review of nutrition standards to take place every three years, um, and it's it's. It's really focused on revenue and participation impacts. So, you know, I think they're looking for, you know, more opportunities to say this is costing too much and more opportunities to interfere politically with science-based nutrition policy
2: uh yeah right okay so um so the turning now so you you kind of got into the like nutritional changes sorry um, i go all over yeah, the yeah no no what no I no do. we're good. <laughs> we're no we're we're great so um all right so we talked about the fr- fruit and vegetable serving size stays the same so what wh- why every 3 years if this is if this Basically, the purpose of reauthorizing this legislation, one of the purposes, is to kind of review the science. The House bill is stepping in and saying, well, "Every three years, you, we have to review the science and make yeah, sure." Yeah,
1: that- it seems meddlesome to me. And as I said, I think it's. it's I think. It's- politicizing um, nutrition policy. And this is just me speculating, but that's how I read it.
2: Right. Well, well, so what does that mean? So they want to, they feel like their constituents are telling them that these changes are too hard, participation's going down. Like, why would they want to interfere?
1: Right. Well, okay. So the School Nutrition Association, um, representing um, a very broad constituency of of districts, has been... um, lobbying for uh, some of these nutrition rigs to be relaxed um, because it's for for certain districts, especially districts that are serving um, kids who have money in their pockets, so districts that have a a, a higher percentage of children who actually pay for their meals, they've they've been hurting as a result of these changes. Um, You know, kids perceive the changed meals as not cool. Maybe they don't like them. Maybe they're not good in some cases. In some cases, they're fantastic. But Mm -hmm. kids will be kids, right? Mm Mm-hmm so um those districts have been really vocal i can 't blame them honestly you know they they need more support to adapt right um, and s n a has has really taken that up um, and um, which is you know I, I think is 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 necessary um, i guess where i um, I would fault s n a is that they're – their kind of research on this isn't really research. So, so the the surveys they take of members um, are are not they're not looking at a cross-section. They don't really, they, they, if you look at their survey results about what their districts are saying about the struggles they're going through, they're not identifying which of them are high poverty and getting more federal reimbursement and actually having that participation go up versus those that have these kind of issues associated with um, retaining paying, you know, customers. Right. So it's, you know... Um, it gets very nuance. Well, yeah, yeah. So, you know, so this, this every three years review, what, what the House is calling for is, well, we want to consult with, um, you know, uh, people who are in the trenches and struggling to make these regulations work. And if they're losing money and, or if their kids and are not accepting it, we want to hear from them because we might, we might need to adjust the rigs then. Sooner. Uh, but, you know, what, yeah. what could happen then is it sort of, um it undercuts any kind of, um, you know, incentive to work on the problem. Right, right. Um, right. So, and, you know, anyone who listens to my show knows that we are all about working on the problem. And I've featured on my show um, many districts that have had to really work to bring their participation back up or even to stabilize it and have been successful at it. So it's not like it can't be done. It's just that they need support. So, like, I, yeah. I, I guess I feel like... The House wants to just throw out the baby with the bathwater. And we have so many good examples of of successful districts. um, And and what we need to be doing is is helping more, you know, come on board.
2: So speaking of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, I want to talk about the fresh fruit and vegetable program. Oh yeah. I don't know if that's the the right segue, but <laughs> no, it's fine. It's
1: fine.
3: It's <laughs> Just so throw it out
2: there. Yeah. So so yeah. what um what does the house bill say um with regard to this really really important awesome program?
1: Yeah, so what's awesome about fresh fruits and vegetable program is that it's it's um, it's uh, for um, high need schools. So it's reaching children who aren't getting um, access to fresh fruits and vegetables at home. Fresh fruits and vegetables are very expensive, so we know that um, lower-income families buy fewer of them. Many of these kids are living in areas that are what we call food deserts, so they're, they're just not around. So fresh fruits and vegetables program is wonderful in that it, it, it gives them an extra serving of fresh fruits and vegetables and that experience in a really um, what quiet setting. They have them in the classroom. So, and, and you can make it, you can even like incorporate curriculum into it. So it's not like the crazed, loud, stressful environment of the cafeteria. It's in the classroom, it's fun. Um, and it's a wonderful way, especially with young children, to get them to have their first taste of, you know, oranges and strawberries and snap mm-hmm. peas and, you know, all that stuff. And that's, that's what it does. The emphasis is on fresh, right? Right. Um, and so what this bill does is it, it scrubs the word fresh. So now it's the Fruit and Vegetable <laughs> Program, and it, it allows for other forms of fruits and vegetables. So now you can bring in, you know, canned, cling peaches or something that's been wow. frozen and thawed out. And it's sort of like, well, I it thought totally... the point of this program was that they'd be fresh. So it's right. um, it's cheaper, I guess, is, is, is why they're doing this, but it, it undermines the whole um purpose of the program.
2: Oh that's that that to me is pretty devastating or would be if it if it made it into the final version of the Mm -hmm. bill. Um, oh okay. Well I'm a little discouraged. Um, where are we now um, in terms of like the time frame with all of this, with the, the process that um, you know these two bills have to kind of have yet to to to, to, to go through. Um,
1: yeah, I think you know, I think we're a stalemate. I think I think we're you know we're there with the uh, you know with the Supreme Court nomination. I, I, I think Aye. nothing's going to happen until the next election cycle, um, which is. <sighs> There are some good things about that. It means that programs that are working now are on autopilot, um, you know, funding. For, for instance, community eligibility, those districts that haven't enrolled yet, mm-hmm. they can go on enrolling
3: because okay. there's
1: just not going to be any law that changes the policy. And the okay. School Nutrition Association is, is really coming out strong and saying, Let's enroll them. You know, let's yeah, get even a bigger critical mass to strengthen support for the program. Right. Um, and the same thing goes for any kind of um, funding that's been authorized. What's what 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 won't happen is any kind of change or increased funding where yeah. it's needed
2: until the may, uh, the fall or maybe almost a year from now. Is that what? It, Are you asking? You ask. You think I know? Yeah, I know. I know. I know. I know. That's a. That is a very, especially with um with this Congress, that is a a impossible question to answer. Right. All right. So right now, likelihood, um, all point, all signs point to an impasse. Great. Yeah,
1: it's an impasse. (laughs) It's an impasse. Um, so you know, we we can just kind of go, you know, move with that assumption for the time being. Um, Right. That's my understanding anyway. I think it was you who told me that, that um, the the uh, House bill is not even going for, for a markup until yeah. May. And, like, do you believe that? I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean...
2: Not if, you know, this was all supposed to be taken care of in September. I don't think it, that bodes well um, mm-hmm. for for the likelihood of this moving forward quickly. Okay, one final question for you, Laura. Is there anything, you know, for our listeners um, who are tuning in right now that you would like to tell them, you know, encourage them to do um, that could maybe help move the needle or, or um, um, you know, help? encourage them to encourage Congress to reach a compromise um, and avoid this stalemate.
1: Well, you know, I, at this point, I, I'm sure there is going to be, you know, from from Frack and from the, some of these other advocates I mentioned, I'm sure there are going to be petitions and campaigns to contact your red legislator with, with you know, what, what you should say, what you should write. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, it, this is all so soon that I'm not aware of any of those yet. So, no campaigns. Um, yes, brilliant. I mean I can say contact your congressperson, right? Um, and, and I'll yeah. say that. But but I think that going forward we're going to see some some um, more organized efforts uh-huh. to to lobby our legislatures, or maybe not. You know, maybe we're all just going to wait for the election. I right. don't know.
2: Well, I think that it was. Um, you know, it was to your point earlier. I think in, in your episode when you covered this on the show, Marie, um, um, you know, really hasn't gotten this this. Big in general hasn't gotten a lot of attention and it was kind of released with you know to no one really re- responding so I'm happy that we were both had the opportunity to kind of cover it and raise these issues to uh, make people aware of what's going on
1: mm-hmm.
2: alright I'm going to leave it there for a conversation on CNR today but if you want more information and access to fabulous resources be sure to check out Laura's website at insideschoolfood.com Laura thank you so much for joining me today
1: it was a pleasure Jenna
2: <laughs> thank you Okay. Um, before we uh, get going now or before we wrap up rather I'm, I'm excited to introduce another segment for our listeners um, if you have been listening regularly you will know that last season we talked a lot about the exciting work happening in the food startup community including the rise in the number and types of food startups what millennial driven market um, what the millennial driven market is dema- demanding from these companies and even the types of programs available at places like the food business school where you can learn the basics on how to launch your own food business building on the trend that we started Started last season, I will now be featuring an innovative and exciting new food organization or startup at the end of each episode. Joining me for today's maiden voyage uh, of this segment is Kimmy Zuki, founder of Food uh, Good Food Good wait, Good Bites. Box. I really botched that. <laughs> I'm sorry, Kenny. No, um, a mission-driven lunchbox delivery service that launched um, in March, right?
3: Yes. So we launched uh, with the spring menu uh, on March 21st, actually. We're, we're like five weeks down into business now.
2: Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit more about um, the product and how it works?
3: Sure. Uh, so Good Bites is a seasonal, nutritionally balanced vegetarian meal based in Brooklyn. We deliver healthy lunches to offices and individuals working working. working in Dumbo and the Navy Yard with plans to expand to Williamsburg and downtown Brooklyn. Uh, so basically, we think to we like to think of ourselves as a thoughtful lunchbox. Uh, we try to be as much conscious as we can in everything that we do, be it from sourcing uh, to the packaging that we use. Uh, and our main mission, which is giving back to tech in schools, which we're gonna talk uh, more in details about in a minute, mm-hmm. uh, and the food waste. So, so today, food waste is a, is a big part of of um, of the food industry, and and we're trying to be as much conscious about this uh, as we can.
2: Right. Okay. Okay so there, there, there so let's just to set the stage for the listeners there are like um, food boxes those compostable boxes
3: Yes exactly um, so we have a seasonal menu that changes uh, every season obviously <laughs> we have 10 lunch boxes on our menu we feature one daily box every day from Monday to Friday so those are five boxes and then the next week we feature another five boxes Monday to Friday and then we re- we loop for the season
2: Okay uh,
3: but we in, in our offering we have we have two kind of offerings we have the individual box which uh, which gets catered to to individual orders. So uh, on any given day, if you feel like eating something healthy and, and giving back, uh, so you can order by 11 a.m. and it gets delivered to your desk between 12 and 1. And then we have the group order. So we're trying to capture the the, the catering uh, and, and, and so, so for meetups and, and larger groups mm-hmm. in which we'd rather have 48 hours in advance notice and you can choose any box on the menu and we'll deliver it to you.
2: And the, can you get the catering? Is it only during lunch hours? Or? Yes.
3: So basically, uh, it's, it's during lunch hours for now. However, uh, the, we, 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 we're still young and, and we just started. So we, we're trying as much as we can to accommodate uh, other times if, uh, if we can. So uh, right. this is something that we discuss by email.
2: Right, right. Okay. And so you mentioned um, you have a, a mission to give back yes. to tech in schools. Can you tell us yes. a little bit about
3: So basically, uh, Good Bites was, was born out of, uh, out of uh, a mission. Uh, and today, the mission is to try to bridge the tech divide in Brooklyn public schools. Uh, Brooklyn today is bustling with tech companies, uh, and it's and 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 it's growing at a phenomenal pace. Uh, so, however, the state of, of of tech in underserved public schools is still at an at an alarming stage. So, access to technology in those schools uh, is still disastrous. Uh, teachers uh, do not have the tools that they need to for for them to be able to give a, a proper education. Uh, let a learn technology as in the coding world. So so today the resources are missing from, from these schools. So what we do is we give back a dollar from the sale of every lunchbox to Donor's Shoes. Donor's Shoes is uh, uh, a crowdfunding f- crowdfunding platform for public school teachers in which uh, a public school teacher can can post a project in which uh, they need so whatever they need uh, as a project and people can crowdfund so what we do as good bites we take out one dollar from the sale of every lunchbox and by the end of the of every month based on based on the on the on the sales that we have done we we, we bring those dollars together and we support different projects
2: oh that 's amazing yeah how do you have a sense of how how much? I mean, you're only five weeks old. so yeah. How much money you've raised so far? So
3: so far, we were able to support seven different projects uh, with with, and we have reached 353 students with with those projects. So uh, that's amazing. Yeah. So uh, it's 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 picking up uh, really well. Uh, the mission is on point for 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 tech offices, and this is our focus uh, for now. Uh, Your delivery.
2: That's the delivery focus yes. area, so, right? So now. So
3: basically, Dumbo has mainly tech and design offices mm-hmm.
2: uh,
3: however there is the, the Brooklyn Tech Triangle that is trying to, to, to bring tech companies together uh, between Dumbo the Navy Yard and downtown Brooklyn and this is where you can find more than 1400 different tech companies so there is uh, a market to capture and there is a lot of uh, giving back that can be, that can happen
2: right on point with um, with the company's mission the tech company's yes, mission exactly oh that's fabulous so um, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and how yes. you decided to launch this business
3: yes of course so basically i used to be in the account planning department of uh, ad agencies which is the, the strategy department and uh, we we use what, what we do is try to develop products campaigns for brands uh, but but most of them are without purpose so so basically what brought me to this is how can i channel my energy into something that has a positive impact on on the community and and today looking at technology as a sector in general it is really defining our future and and if, if if we do not support it from now, especially with kids and and at a young age, uh, I think that we we, we can get to uh, to a place where we have a gap between between uh, uh, in the market when it comes to people who are who have the background mm-hmm. and the knowledge to uh, who are prepared. Yes, exactly.
2: Yeah. Wow. Well. Um, okay. One one final question for you. Um, Oh, and I have to say, um, I love the branding. I thank think it so is much. unbelievable. So it's like one of so the much. the the cleanest, like most innovative um, brands that I that I have seen out there. And if this is even possible, the food is even better. So.
3: Yeah, but this is this is, we, we try to make to make a point out of this. So so basically, if if a brand is conscious and is is trying to help and is trying to be a, a part of of the culture of of a community. Yeah. It does not mean that it cannot be uh, really well designed and well thought of. So, so the design aspect is something that we, we pride ourselves in yeah. and uh, we're very happy.
2: It's very strong. And the food, um, which I personally first came across at Brooklyn food works because yes, exactly. you were, um, you were providing a lot of the meals for free for, yeah. for everyone in the co working space. It was unbelievable. And, um, I was like, I need to track this down immediately <laughs> and eat these every day. It was really, really delicious. So oh. can you tell our listeners just, um, before we wrap up where we can find your product?
3: Yes, so our product is is online. You go to www. Good Bites Box. Bites is, is with a Y in reference to the megabytes and, yeah. and the bytes intake. So it's www.goodbitesbox.com.
2: All right. And with that, we're going to wrap up for t- today. I want to thank my guests, Laura Stanley and Kim Izuki, so much for coming on the show. And thank you to our sponsors for your generous support. Our show is produced with the help from with help from the brilliant Austin Bernarski, who you all know and love. I also want to give a shout out to the newest member of the Eating Matters team, Taylor Lanzet, who we're thrilled to have on board show music is by the talented tim archer and our engineer is jack insley all episodes of eating matters are available on heritage radio network website or as a podcast on itunes and stitcher if you haven't done so already please subscribe like share follow and post to us on facebook and find us on twitter at eat matters hrn i'm jenna Ute and thank you for listening Mother
3: had left thanks for listening to this program on heritage radio network.org